Father, we come to you and acknowledge your sovereignty over all of the earth. You are the God who have created life. Life comes from you, and you have uh, granted us the gift of life. You've created us to know you and to enjoy you. And Lord, for the past 22 or 23 days, Muslims around the world have been fasting and praying. Uh, and this week will conclude with a season of requesting that the God who created this world would reveal himself to them. And Lord Jesus, we have Muslims who are our neighbors, and you have commanded us to love our neighbors. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open up opportunities for conversations with our Muslim neighbors about you. Lord, they believe that you, Jesus, are a prophet, but you are so much more than just a prophet. You are the resurrected and reigning son of the living God. So give us opportunities to share why we believe that you are much more than a prophet. And Lord, we know many will be praying and asking you this Thursday for you to reveal yourself in fresh and new ways. And Lord Jesus, we would pray that you'd answer that prayer by allowing those who are genuinely seeking you to see the glory of God through you. Jesus, you came to this earth and revealed the characteristics of God the Father in ways that no one has ever done in the history of this world. You have accomplished our salvation. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open up the eyes and hearts of Muslims who are seeking you to see your glory and the glory of God reflected through Jesus. So, Lord, let those who are genuinely seeking you find you. Your word tells us if we seek you with all of our hearts that you will let us find you. And I pray that you would do that this week for many who are seeking you. And Lord, let yourself be found. Reveal yourself in truth. Lord, your word is truth. So let truth prosper in this land. Let goodness and righteousness prosper. And we pray for uh, those believers who have uh, come from a Muslim background to have open doors of opportunity to share their own experience of coming to faith in you, Lord Jesus. So magnify your name among Muslims. And Lord, we would pray that you would magnify your name this morning. Let us delight in you, Lord Jesus. Let us see with wonder and awe all that you have done. We exalt your name. We worship your name. Lord, we know that there is no salvation apart from the name of the Lord Jesus, for there's no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. And so, Lord, let the name of Jesus be cherished among all of us and among Muslims. And so, Lord, may you um, allow hearts to trust and cherish the person of you, who you are. So let us see who you truly are. And we thank you for your kindness and your mercy and your grace and your incredible patience that you have shown to us through the Lord Jesus. And it is in your powerful name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this week, we return to a series that we've been moving through the New Testament. Uh, it's called Empty, which breaks up the New Testament into different periods of time so that we can see what God is doing. We are in the, the, the period represented by the T, which is teaching. 
Uh, we're in part three, and today we, we will hit the final seven epistles um, that are, uh, we find in the New Testament. So if you have your Bible, it would be wonderful if you would join me in 1 Peter. That is where we will begin. So if you find your way there, that will be great. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's epistles. We've uh, discovered uh, he's got a, a lot of New Testament epistles, and we look particularly at the four epistles that he... An epistle just means letter, but we, we looked at four of those letters which he wrote while he was in prison. They're called the prison epistles. And then we looked at uh, three other epistles which are called the pastoral epistles, which he wrote towards the end of his life. Uh, but in writing to young believers, um, and these letters primarily uh, were written under the rule of Nero, um, and he, who ended, his reign ended in, in A.D. 65. Uh, the epistles that Paul wrote were written around A.D. 60, A.D. 62, all the way up until A.D. 65. And so that takes us to where we pick up this morning, which is the final seven uh, epistles that we find in the New Testament, which are essentially the general epistles. Um, epistles are simply the letters, and that's the majority of what we have in the New Testament. So if you're wondering, what is the New Testament? It's essentially a collection of letters written by the apostles uh, or those closely associated with apostles of Jesus to the churches all around the world. So these are letters that uh, Jesus, who has authorized his apostles and sent them to teach on his behalf, after he ascended into heaven, his work continued through his apostles as he's instructing them to write and, and teach the churches throughout the world. And we have this collected in what we call the New Testament. The general epistles are simply called general because they're written to areas of large geographic uh, range. Like, for example, uh, Peter in his epistles, he writes to churches in the areas of western Turkey. And so a, a very significant geographic area, but today we'll put these in chronological order and try to both, uh, get through about seven or so. Again, an impossible task, but we're doing it anyway. So we're, we're, our, our goal is to get a, a general idea of, of what's contained in each of these epistles. So if we were to put these in chronological order, it would be first and second Peter, um, written around 65 or so AD. Um, Hebrews and Jude both come next. Uh, the dates are, are uh, ap, not, can't get too much specificity, but around A.D. 65 or so. And then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John would be the final ones. All of these taking place over the uh, reign of three Roman emperors, Nero, Vespasian, and his son Titus. So the general epistles, um, they're basically two purposes that we see uh, in the epistles of why they are written they're written in the face of increasing false teaching that is creeping into the church. And so um, the epistles are written to clarify what is true Christian doctrine and what is not. So in order to, to uh, avoid the lies and the deceptions of false teachers, uh, the, the epistles were written. They're also written to encourage Christians in the face of intensifying persecution which is on the rise throughout the world at the time these letters were being written. And Christians were facing opposition from sort of two different directions. Christians unwaveringly affirm Jesus as the Messiah. 
steadfastly will not give in on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. This causes problems from both the Romans and the Jews who reject Jesus as Messiah. So the Romans get ticked off at Christians because they constantly say, we're only going to worship Jesus. We're not going to worship any Caesar. Jesus alone is our God. We're only going to worship God through Christ. So that brings persecution from the Romans and the the Jewish leaders who have rejected Jesus and said, he's not the Messiah. Listen to us. Stop talking about Jesus. These Christians just won't stop talking about Jesus. They persist. So this becomes a source of irritation. And so we get this persecution coming from two different directions on Christians. And so the epistles are written to encourage hope and joy and to continue steadfastly clinging to the truths that have been handed down to us, as well as to, to grant endurance through persecution. So if you, if you listen and, and read constantly through Scripture, you're going to find Endure, a call to to continue to to cling by faith to the truths that you have have embraced as a believer and not let go of them. So the the gospel writers are going to help you cling to Christ in faith. And that uh, persecution we see intensifies as we've, uh, just around AD 62 or so, um, we see the death of James, who is the brother of Jesus. So just prior to the death of Paul, uh, James was arrested by the high priest in Jerusalem, and uh, it was a time of Passover, and he, uh, the high priest, wanted James to put down, James was a leader in the the church of the uh, the believing Christians in Jerusalem, and the high priest wanted James to put to Uh, to an end of all this talk about Jesus. And so he told James, you need to rebuke these people, these these misguided Jewish believers who are proclaiming that Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. You need to put this down and stop it. So some accounts of this story uh, tell us that the uh, the high priest made James get up onto a a portion of the the top of the temple so that he could be heard by the crowds who had gathered for worship over uh, at Pentecost. And, And the high priest said, now tell him. And guess what James does? He does not rebuke those who were believing in Jesus, but instead took the opportunity to say, Jesus is the Messiah. He actually has been raised from the dead. Long ago, God promised, and Jesus had Nazareth had now fulfilled by signs and wonders, and he proclaimed Jesus to everybody listen. And of course, the high priest then, uh, we are told, commanded that he be thrown down from the, the top of the temple, 30 feet or so. Uh, James did not die in the fall. He survived the fall. He was, he was badly wounded, but uh, he survived. And so uh, the high priest then ordered him to be stoned to death. And so he was. And so persecution of Christians in Jerusalem began at this time to increasingly get worse with the, with the death of James after this. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus. And then also uh, about this time, around 64 AD, there was a fire. If you've studied history, you remember the great fire of Rome. Um, that uh, destroyed about two-thirds of the city. 
uh, Nero was emperor at this time, and rumors began to circulate that Nero had started this fire in order to make room uh, for a palace that he wanted to build, and in order to put down those rumors, Nero said the fire was started by Christians and ordered them to be persecuted and killed. He uh, began crucifying Christians around his palace grounds, Uh, in order to illuminate his evening parties. He burned Christians alive to prove that he did not start the fire and that it was Christians, and so he was going to punish them. Christians at this time began to be condemned as haters of humanity because they rejected Roman gods. They were called atheists. They were called cannibals because it was reported that, I, I quote, they ate the flesh and drank the blood of their god. A misunderstanding of of the Lord's table and communion. And yet, this is what was proclaimed about Christians. They were also decried as being incestuous because they called each other brother and sister. What is up with that? We could understand if there's no teaching and no clarification, then that could be confusing. And so these were spread about Christians. And so this is, this is the time period into which Peter writes. He's in Rome about this same time. And so he writes his first two epistles from Rome. He, writes, uh, from, he, he talks about Rome as Babylon. He wasn't actually in Babylon, but it's a veiled reference to a city of immorality and pagan worship. And so he writes uh, from Rome and he addresses his letter to the regions of Western Turkey, uh, to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these areas in the, in the northwestern section of Turkey. Um, and he writes to Christians who are being persecuted in all of these regions. So he has a wide range of uh, Christians in mind. And so he intends for his letter to be circulated. Again, we see this often when, when the apostles write letters to a, a particular congregation. They're often told, as Paul does, share this with the other churches in the area. Spread this letter around. It's intended to be helpful. Um, but all of the persecution that's going on, it is amazing to me how Peter begins his letter. So I want you to see this. So you've heard about the intensification of persecution that's happening in this, this time period. Um, well-known friends of Peter is being killed for the gospel. And yet, here's how he begins his letter. Verses, I'm going to read verses 3 to 9. He begins with worship. When he starts his letter in seasons of persecution, he starts with worship. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Do you hear hope in the middle of this persecution? Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven by, God, by God's power who are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And in this, you rejoice. In this salvation, this wonderful, inexpressible, amazing salvation. In this, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Love that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's absolutely incredible. Peter's grasping for words to describe the incredible nature of salvation. Do you hear him? Joy that is inexpressible. Yes, for a season, now, you're suffering. But don't let that kill your faith. And if you're one of those people who are in seasons of suffering, you need this. We need God's word to sustain us through seasons of sorrow and grief. And so Peter turns, he begins with worship when he's writing to hurting people. He points them to this amazing, wonderful salvation that we have been granted through Jesus Christ, who's been raised from the dead, he said. He's been resurrected. This is real. And so he's, he's standing in sort of awe and amazement of this salvation. And he goes on and he says, prophets and angels have longed to understand this salvation that you have been given. He said, long ago, when the prophets were writing about this Messiah who would be revealed in the future, they were trying to wrap their brains around the glory of God in all that he's doing. And he even says in verse 12, angels themselves long to understand this salvation. Now, can you imagine angels sitting in heaven pondering, what is God doing with these people? This is absolutely incredible. Did you know you were the subject of of homework for angels? Trying to figure out how God is at work in in your lives and giving us this gracious salvation. So this this is Peter writing to suffering and discouraged Christians, wanting to encourage them. And then he goes on and he concludes, because we have this amazing salvation, then you need to live according to the qualities of of God the Father. He is holy. Our God is holy. And because he is holy, his children need to be holy just as well. And so he calls us to live holy lives. He says, be holy in all of your conduct. Be holy in all of your conduct in verse 15. So God is holy And the freedom that Christ has purchased is for believers now to enjoy the fullness of joy and the sweetness and goodness that comes from holiness. Jesus did not save you to continue in sin. He redeemed us so that we could live in holiness. So we are called to live holy. And our challenge, I think, is do we actually believe you can be happier living a holier life than you can if you're living a sinful life? Because the lies of the enemy and the false teachers will tell you it's better to sin. That is a lie from the devil. Jesus poured out his blood to demonstrate that we can be set free from dominion of sin in order to enjoy righteousness and holiness that comes to the people of God. So that is why Jesus died. He died to deliver us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Verse 9 of chapter 2. So The salvation we have is not a little flashlight to keep us content in our sin. We have been transferred completely from one domain, the domain of of Satan, into a kingdom of light. And the call then is for us to believe that and walk in it. 
to embrace holiness. So to be holy in everything that we, all of our conduct. And so suffering is part of awakening us to the terrors of sin. Peter says, suffering purges us from addiction to sin. It, It causes you to become seriously alert. Isn't that true? Have you ever walked through the house at night and stepped on a Lego barefooted? It will cause your senses to become immediately alert. I, forever, my kids, I found every missing Lego, usually at 2 a.m. when I was walking to get, you know, milk and cheese or something. Oh, there's, I scream, you know, dad found another Lego, right? Pain awakens us to what is real. Suffering has that quality of, of causing you to think about what is serious in this world. So suffering has a holy effect, is what Peter says. So don't get angry at God when he takes you through suffering in order to free you from from being enamored falsely with sin. So he says, shepherd to the elders, in the conclusion of the letter, he says, shepherd the flock of God. He, He concludes with a call for the shepherds to do their job in helping the, the, the people of God love the things of God. And he also says, this is wonderful, um, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Anybody have any anxieties? You carrying any way? If you are, just raise your hand. You have something in your mind Raise it up. Now, keep your hand up if you have anxiety. All right, imagine it's in your hand. What what Jesus would say is, give it to me. Let go of it. You've got it. Maybe this is an act of prayer. Paul commanded us to pray with uplifted, holy hands. Imagine the anxieties that you're carrying as something you just need to be free from. And so when you're praying, you're alone in your closet, Lord Jesus, take it. I can't carry it. The weight of the relationship, I can't do this. Cast it. And then believe he catches it. Trust by faith he receives your grief. That is our Savior. He carries our burdens. He's incredible. So cast, who invites you to give away your problems so that he can take them? Who does that? Jesus does that. The apostles tell us he does. So be free. Don't carry your cares and your anxieties. Have faith in daily prayer. Push them onto the Lord Jesus. He's strong enough to care about your troubles. He's got the shoulders to bear your burdens. And so that's what Peter reminds us to do. He says, give away your troubles. And then in Peter's second epistle, you know one of the things I've discovered in preparing for these sermons as I'm looking through seven's epistles, the Bible is filled with incredible stuff. Absolutely amazing. Have you ever sat down and had to read seven epistles in one go? Try it sometimes. It's pretty amazing, actually. I, I've, I've, I was reading through this. I, this is amazing. This is amazing. This is amazing. I have to read this. We don't have to. I have to. This is incredible. So it, the Lord reminded me of a passage um, at the very beginning of 2 Peter. When you think, I can't do this. I can't live this holy life that I'm being called to. 
We have Peter who will say to you in, so if you have your Bibles, flip to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. He says, his divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit, God has given you all you need to live a life that is filled with holiness and godliness. You you don't have to go seeking somewhere else. The Spirit of God dwelling within you who overcame the sin and death is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit who dwells within Christians. He is there with you with all the power of God himself to help you live the life that you're called to live. And so the devil will come to tell you, you can't do this. Just give in, right? That's what he says every time. Just give in to sin. And and Peter would remind us, his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. So trust in the power of the Holy Spirit within you because it is, Peter will say, waterless springs who will declare to you, just indulge your sinful desires. It's okay, just give in. You deserve this. This is the false teaching that was creeping in to the church. And Peter was saying, I'm going to write and remind you of the truth. And so the first chapter in 2 Peter is is all of these qualities that he says, add to your walk, uh, get away from sinful desire, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and on and on. He says, if these qualities are in your life and you are are growing in them, you will never cease to be fruitless. Something good, God will work in your life. And then Peter reminded me of a verse that God used long ago to encourage me in my call to ministry. And it's it's in verse 12. So this is 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read 12 to 15. The Lord used this as I was studying one day and just pressed this into my soul. I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That's what preachers do. We just remind you of what you already know. Right? How many times do you come to a worship service and learn something new? Once in a while, I, my ministry is a ministry of reminder. I'm just telling you what you ought to already know, that if you're following the Lord, he is going to work through your life. And so Peter says, I'm going to die soon. I know the Lord Jesus has told me I'm about to lay down my life. But he says, I am going to make every effort so that after I'm gone, you'll be able to remember this stuff. So he's writing this letter. And it is the Lord Jesus who is inspiring Peter through his spirit to write to you. And Peter goes on and he says an incredible thing next about the word of God. So he says, you have to know this is true. So verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16. I'm going to read the next paragraph and then we'll talk about it, right? For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Peter's saying, we didn't make this stuff up. We're not sitting around, we're poor fishermen. We don't have time to sit around and make up lies. We're telling you the truth. We were eyewitnesses of this. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. What, what is in his mind is when he was Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and God the Father spoke out loud, could, could you fathom in your mind hearing God speak verbally, audibly? We always say it. Well, I haven't heard God speak audibly. Well, Peter did. And, and so this is in his mind. He said, we were eyewitnesses of, in verse 18, we ourselves heard the very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And, and here's the amazing sentence. We have something more sure, the prophetic word or depending on what version of the ESV you have, the, e, the, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a long paragraph, but do you hear what he's saying? I heard the voice of God. I was an eyewitness to God the Father speaking out loud from heaven. But I want you to know there's something more certain than that. That's what he is saying. And what is it? It's the prophetic word. It's the Bible is what he is saying. I can be more confident than hearing a voice from heaven. You can be sure that Jesus is the Messiah by knowing God's word. That is stunning to me. Because you would think, well, if you heard the voice of God, good grief, isn't that pretty sure? And Peter says there's something more sure, more certain, the prophetic word confirmed. Meaning, it took thousands of years to write what we have in our hands. And for God in advance, hundreds of years in advance, to reveal where would the Messiah be born? What would he do? What kinds of signs would accompany him? How would his, his ministry unfold? All of those things fulfilled in the life of Jesus. How would he die? How would his enemies treat him when he died? Written hundreds of years in advance. And all of it fulfilled through Jesus. And Peter says, don't trust subjective experience. Trust the prophetic word of God. Your confidence, you can be absolutely certain Jesus is Messiah if you dig in this book. Right? People have, uh, who was it? Who wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Yeah, Josh McDowell. Right? He set out to prove Christianity is a bunch of nonsense and got saved in the process. Because he started looking at, good grief, hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by one man? How could he be anything other than the Messiah? If you want to read a great book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict is one of them. And so here's Peter saying, don't trust whispering ears or little voices in the night. Confirm it in God's word. Study and know. And so that's what Peter's writing about. False teachers are, are abounding in his time. And he is saying, read your Bibles. 
uh, which is a wonderful thing I will go to my grave saying again and again. Read your Bibles, all right? Read, test, study to know how to handle God's word well. And so that's, the, that's Peter's point. Uh, he will, this, this, Second Peter's the last recorded words of Peter that we have. He was, um, according to church tradition, crucified upside down in about A.D. 64 or 65 in Rome because he said, I am not worthy to die the same death as my Lord Jesus who was crucified upright, so crucify me upside down. He gave up his life proclaiming the gospel and trying to communicate truth. So that's First and Second Peter. Read it, read it, read it, read it. It's wonderful. Next, in, if we follow the chronological uh, unfolding of the epistles, we would go to Hebrews. Hebrews is an interesting letter. It is an absolutely astounding letter. And going through it again, I was, I was amazed afresh at how incredible it is. Hebrews is one of those letters, probably written around A.D. 65 or so, just before the destruction of the temple. Uh, we don't know who the author is. It's uncertain exactly who the author is. Church tradition held for a long time that it was the Apostle Paul, but there are so many differences with Hebrews than all of Paul's other letters. For example, Paul always identifies himself. He always starts and closes with grace and peace. That's, that's not present in Hebrews. Um, some have thought that this is perhaps a sermon that Paul preached that someone wrote down, which it could be, uh, but it clearly is put into a letter form. Uh, so think of Hebrews as a kind of sermonic letter. It, it's instructive. It's brilliantly uh, written as a sustained argument for the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the old covenant. It's an incredible book. And Gavin Macbeth was actually supposed to preach today because uh, Steve and David Gonzalez and I were away at a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky. And so Gavin was going to preach, but uh, very suddenly and tragically, his brother died uh, midweek. And so Gavin was unable to preach today. But Gavin had, so please pray for him and his family. Um, his older brother um, is the brother that died. And, um, but Gavin was amazed with Hebrews. And so as I was considering Hebrews, like Gavin, uh, we went for a walk yesterday and, and talked this through. And um, I said, what if, what if we just, I won't even talk about Hebrews, I'll just mention it, and you preach on it later in the summer. Because it's incredible. Hebrews is absolutely incredible. And he said, I would love that. So we will push pause, and Gavin will return to Hebrews later in the summer. Um, but it, it could be that the author is, some have put forth Apollos, some have mentioned um, perhaps Barnabas as an author, but in, in one of the church fathers said it this way, he said, um, perhaps only God alone knows who the author is. I suspect that's true. It's, it's filled with, with glorious scripture, so we'll return to it, but I just, I just leave you with the first two verses um, in, in Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? Jesus is so much more than a prophet. 
He, he is the one through whom this world was created. You were created through the will of the Lord Jesus. And so he is highly to be exalted among all others. So we'll come back to Hebrews. That gives you a little taste of, of how incredible it is. And next, uh, the next epistle we'll go to is Jude, written in about A.D. 65. Uh, it is, the, if you flip with me to, it's the second to the last book of the Bible, right in front of Revelation. And it's the third shortest book in the Bible, I think. You can read it in about five minutes. Um, it's, a, it's a sweet little letter. Um, just a couple of things to point to. Jude is... He describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. When we looked at James, we established that James is the brother of Jesus. Jude is also one of the brothers. Um, you know, Jesus had four brothers, you might say half-brothers, meaning they all descended from Mary, but Joseph was not the father of Jesus, but he was of Jesus' other brothers. I think some people got confused when I was talking about that in a couple, a couple weeks back. Um, but Jude, and if that's confusing, talk to me afterwards. We'll try to straighten that out. But Jude is writing, and he says, I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. So all of Jesus' brothers, Mark chapter 3 tells us they didn't believe in him during his early ministry. You ever had brothers that didn't believe in you? <laughs> you, you know, Todd, you're never going to be anything, right? You know, all, those kind of things, right? We, my brothers, they were, they were great most of the time. But Jesus' brothers were not convinced. They didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. And then they became convinced. Jude calls him Jesus Christ. Jesus, Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. So they, this is how he identifies himself. He says, I'm the brother of James. I think out of humility. He just says, I'm not going to even exalt myself to the claim of brother of Jesus. I'm just going to be humble and say, I'm the brother of James. But look at verse 1. This is sweet. This is how he begins his letter. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Christians. You're called, you're beloved, and you're kept. You're called. Rick DiMuzio, God wants you in his relationship. That's what he does. He calls us by name and calls us into a relationship with him. He then says, I want you to know you're loved. You are beloved and you're kept. God's got you. He is helping you to maintain your faith in him. And so here's a reminder of what G James wants to communicate. He also says um, that he, he's writing out of a, a, a concern for false teaching, which has come in. In verse 3, he said, I wanted to write to you about our salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in who are teaching false stuff. He's saying, I wanted to write you about the wonder of our salvation, but I can't. Something more urgent has come up. There's false teachers among you, and so I need to write to you to cling to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Meaning, we have no permission to deviate from the apostolic faith. We need to cling to the faith that the apostles preached, not come up with new and crazy stuff. So, uh, one of my professors in seminary said, beware of theological novelty. Beware of new truth. Because if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's not new. 
been around for a long time. So be very careful. And that's what James is saying here. There are some coming in who are perverting grace and saying that sensuality and sexual sin are acceptable is what is being taught. And so James warns, a Jude warns them, those who persist in sexual sin will be condemned by God. He gives an example. He thinks of Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by God because we're told in verse 7, he says, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, by which he means homosexual desire. So Jude is instructing Christians that these cities serve as an example of the fact that pursuing and indulging in sexual sin, not just homosexual sin, any kind of sexual sin, will ultimately lead to God's judgment. And he says, run away. Run away from sexual sin. Like Paul, flee sexual immorality. It matters what we do with our bodies. And he says, the guys who are teaching this stuff are following dreams, their own dreams, their own mind, their own thinking, or we might say their own subjective experience. They're, they're, they're trusting in their own dreams and they have rejected authority. It's a very interesting way to describe false teachers. They're following what their own mind comes up with, and they reject authority, right? They say, nobody, I, I'm teaching you the truth. Ignore other established authority. Listen to me. So again, we have to be very careful. And we see here, Christians are called to be those who live under the authorities over us, not blindly or without qualification. We follow God's principles and his commands in deciding who we believe and who we submit to, but we're called to be a people who submit to those in authority over us. And then the final words of Jude is a beautiful doxology, verses 24 and 25. Jude says this, now unto him who is able to keep you uh, from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Sweet words. A benediction is simply a concluding blessing. This is what Jude wants. I want you to have joy in the Lord. And that comes from being obedient. So there's Jude, really short, but wonderful, powerful little book. And then the last three are John's three epistles. So 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, he, John is writing here. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the same John who wrote the Revelation of John, which is singular, just to be a reminder. It's the Revelation of John. Uh, all of these are the same. Um, John wrote his gospel uh, in, uh, these epistles were written in about A.D. 85 or so. The gospel was written in about A.D. 90. And then the revelation of John happened about A.D. 95. So somewhere around there. But John was not in Jerusalem. Uh, a couple of church fathers, uh, Polycarp and Papias, who were contemporaries and apostles who followed John, uh, record for us that around A.D. 66, John left Jerusalem because persecution was intensifying and, and departed with some other Christians and went to Ephesus. And, and he stayed in Ephesus. And things were getting really tense, A.D. 66 or so, in Jerusalem uh, because of uh, an uprising that came about as a result of Jews feeling that they were being mocked for their faith by uh, some Romans and Greeks present in Jerusalem. And so they began rioting in the city. Nero was the emperor. He reigned from AD 54 to 68. Um, he 
sent troops in to to push down this rebellion. Herod Agrippa tried to to suppress the the revolt as well. That didn't work. It only caused the problems to increase and, and get worse. Some zealots about this same time dashed outside of the city into the wilderness and captured um, the Herodian palace at Masada, which is a 1,300-foot butte with a flat top uh, where uh, Herod had built two palaces. Uh, So Masada was captured by the Jews under a ruse and a a kind of a a deception. And so all-out war was beginning between uh, the Jews and the Romans. Back in Jerusalem, things got even worse, and the Jews organized and decided now was the time to fight. They appointed regional generals, of whom one of them was a guy called Josephus. You've heard of Josephus, a first-century Jewish historian. He was actually a 29-year-old general appointed to oversee the Galilee, the region of Galilee, in in, Jerusalem. fighting against Rome. When Nero heard that organization was happening, he sent Vespasian uh, south into Jerusalem to put this down, in which Vespasian had to go through Galilee in order to get south into Jerusalem, which Josephus is is monitoring and, and governing this area, defending Galilee. So Vespasian and Josephus came head to head. And Vespasian won. He was, Josephus had 60,000 uh, sort of civilian troops with him, but they were severely outnumbered. He wound up, him and his men, hiding in a cistern until the Roman troops overtook them. Vespasian said, come out, surrender alive, which meant we'll take you back to Rome and kill you there. Um, all of uh, Josephus' friends committed suicide. He didn't. He, he, he really felt God was calling him to live. And so he surrendered to Vespasian, and he said, uh, he requested a private audience with Vespasian and Titus, and he said to them, I think the both of you, God has revealed to me that the both of you are going to be emperors. You'll be Caesar one day, both of you. Vespasian, you'll be Caesar. Titus, so will you. This captured Vespasian's attention enough that he didn't kill Josephus. He kept him in prison in Caesarea for two years. But his predictions came true. Vespasian did become emperor, as well as Titus. Both of them did. Um, But as John now, if we go back to to what started all this, John, when hearing that Vespasian was coming and some of the Roman armies were gathering, John left Jerusalem. He and other Christians got out and went to Ephesus. And so in Ephesus, John is writing these three epistles. But what's difficult is all of this persecution is happening in the church. Significant and and destructive uh, persecution. And so battles are ensuing. Um, When Vespasian became emperor, he left to go back to Rome. He left Titus in control of the uprising in Jerusalem. And so in AD 70, in about May, Titus began pounding the walls of Jerusalem, and it took him two weeks to knock down the outer wall. Um, Once they got inside, another five days to get into the inner wall. And beyond that, by uh, the Jews kept fighting inside Jerusalem. Titus kept pressing in. They were, any Jews who tried to escape were immediately crucified. All of them were killed. And uh, they pressed on, and eventually in August 
of A.D. 70, Titus made his way all the way to the temple complex on the Temple Mount. And that then, um, once they finished off the remaining Jews there, they killed them all, slaughtered them, burned the temple, and completely destroyed Jerusalem. And that was the end of Jerusalem. And about a decade after this is when John is writing his epistles. So just to give you a little history of, of what we're talking about. But if you look at 1 John 1, 4, in the middle of all the suffering, hear again what John says. We are writing these things to you. This is 1 John 1, 1.4. We're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Some manuscripts have your joy may be complete. And he goes on to say that. But he's concerned that God's children, even in seasons of great suffering, can so deeply know an intimate relationship with Jesus that joy is able to be present in seasons of suffering. This is what makes Christians so strange, is a kind of contentment that comes from knowing you are spiritually one with God the Father and living according to those truths. And so John writes, be filled with love. Love one another. Right? Love one another. And I just, I pause for a moment and you know, the, the past couple years have been really hard, haven't they? Incredibly difficult. And, and we have not always done well at loving one another through crazy seasons of COVID and all kinds of chaos. And, and this made me stop and pause and, and sit with the Lord. And Have we done that well? We haven't. But that doesn't mean we can't recover. It doesn't mean we can't ask for forgiveness and say I'm sorry for not doing things as well as I wished I could have or for miscommunicating or any of those things, right? Sometimes we're guilty of those kinds of wrongs against one another. But do we know we love each other? I, I, we as Christians are going, ought to be known for our love. And I invite you is to sit with this notion. Is there anyone I need to go to and say, I love you. I'm, I'm sorry I poked you in the eye during COVID, but I love you. Would you forgive me? And would you let us start afresh, right? Grace, mercy, renewed every morning. No relationship will last without the fact of God's mercies and grace are new every morning, Right? I'm dead without that. I, I am a dead man because I, we unintentionally offend people and we intentionally offend people. And yet if there's no grace and there's no forgiveness, we're lost. And so John says, love each other. Love each other with tender-hearted compassion from the Holy Spirit. And I, I implore with you, be gracious to one another. I, I've told the story before, but it came to me again. I was running around Horn Pond, and I saw this ancient Chinese couple walking together. I mean, it had to be 90s plus, walking very slowly, I might add. And I'm running around Horn Pond. They're holding hands 90, in their 90s. And as I passed them, I just this curiosity just welled up within me. How do 90-year-olds still hold hands and walk around the lake? And I passed by them, and, and this thought occurred to me. You should ask them, what? 
What is going on in their relationship? So I, by the time I wrestled with myself and figured out I'm going to ask the question, I'm already half a mile away. And so I decided to keep running. And if I found them on the other side, again, I would stop and talk to them. So I made the loop. I came back. There they were, headed in the other direction, again, walking very slowly. And I, I came up to them and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, you two seem to be happily married. What What's your secret? What would you tell a young guy? It's a secret to happy marriage. And the guy instantly laughed. He just, <laughs> and he looked at his wife and he said, son, if you want to have a happy marriage, you got to learn how to forgive. And we smiled and shook hands and went on our way. I, isn't that true in any relationship? All right, if you want to have a happy relationship between you and God, you've got to ask for forgiveness. And it's incredible that he actually grants it because none of us deserve it. But we don't want to abuse that forgiveness. But forgiveness is powerful. And I challenge you, is there anyone you need to forgive? Is there anyone you need to go and ask to forgive you? Be gracious and kind to one another. This life is too short. And we will, as Peter said, the putting off of this body is coming very soon. And so, concluding words, 1 John. What's the point of all this? 1 John chapter 5, 11 to 3. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Life only comes from faith in Jesus. Eternal life only comes from faith in Jesus. The ability to forgive people who have wronged you only comes from faith in the Lord Jesus. So let us bow and worship before this wonderful guy called Jesus who grants salvation to unworthy persons. Let's pray together. Father, would you allow the truths that we have heard to sink in? Would you give us faith, Lord Jesus? Would you let us cherish the name of Jesus who bore our sins? And Lord Jesus, do a miracle within us Would you work salvation into our souls in such a way that those right now who love you are strengthened to endure persecution and suffering as well as to patiently endure the people around us who don't yet know you with whom we find ourselves being impatient. Lord, fill us, your children, with your spirit so that every one of us in our unique situation can glorify you. Father, there are spouses in this room who are married to unbelievers who yearn for their spouses to come to know you. Give them patience. Father, there's marriages in this room who are wounded and we have offended each other. 
We've been unfaithful. And I pray for forgiveness. Holy Spirit, fill us with supernatural ability to be gracious to one another. God, we have parents and children who can't even stand to be in the same room with each other. Give us grace and love, Lord Jesus. Lord, some of us harbor hatred towards our supervisors at work. Free us, Lord Jesus, from carrying that anxiety. Deliver us. Let us be released from secret hatred. And Lord Jesus, revive a love for you in the hearts of all of us that supersedes every other affection in our lives. And I pray, would you grant faith to those in this room who do not yet know you. Some of us have been hearing the gospel for years and we've never asked for forgiveness of our sins. We've never surrendered to you. Lord Jesus, grant faith and trust to those people who need to humble themselves before you and ask for forgiveness. And give them the gift of your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon those who need regeneration and those of us who need revivification. So God, renew us and revive us. Restore us, Lord Jesus, through your powerful name, I pray. And it is in you alone we trust and know that you can do all things. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.